Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Hello, Craig. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, welcome to Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. Um, the most rambunctious occult podcast on the market. Sponsored by Two for One Adrenochrome. Get your Adrenochrome today with code word Epstein. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, we do, I do like to have fun on this podcast, so, so feel free to, you know, no holds barred. Though I wouldn't say that to you in person because you are a martial artist and probably would I know, that's wonderful. do many it. things to me. Yeah, you know, I really, I listened to your new Glitch Bottle, or not Glitch Bottle, um, you know, the, 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 that oh, other podcast, the better one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, called Personality on Tantric Physics, which is, uh, you know, is out again in two volume edition. It looks really nice. So I want to talk to you about so that. Much. But a point that came up that we, uh, just before we hit record, I was thinking about was was that issue that you were saying, you're... Uh, a lot of Pete, you're surprised. You said on the with to Greg Kaminsky, um, how many people come to spirituality, ask for a teacher, or look for a guru. But then you're surprised how met, how few of them actually have any sort of background or have done any reading in philosophy or theology or religion or spirituality in any sort of substantial way. Yes. So yeah, that's it's, it's a it's a because we both have a religious studies background. Yeah, and I think that's a big um, elephant in the room, and obviously in the Western world, but also in general spiritual paths in our contemporary times, a lot of people just they don't they lack a a foundation to even kind of situate their studies, um, and so I think that having someone who has a background in study of philosophy from all cultures, Eastern and Western, um, is only going to benefit them in their personal studies. Um, and it's going to give them a bit more tools to ask questions, more tools to frame their studies, more tools to develop critical thinking skills, all these kind of things like that, which is so important. Yeah, I know I, 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 one of the I think it was the first philosophy course I took at university. Um, I, uh, I asked the teacher, I said, what would your prognosis be if someone described seeing light? or halos of energy around people, he'd say, oh, they're, they're obviously insane. There's no other possible explanation. That's, 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 that's the truth. And I was like, okay, gotcha. And, uh, from then for the rest of that course, and I was actually doing two courses with him, God help me. Um, I would just walk by the classroom at class time, wave to him and then go down to the gym. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I just, I just took the tests and wrote the essays. Yeah, I mean, the academic world, you know, offers its own challenges. And so I think, you know, even though we're discussing the importance of having some type of educational background, you always have to go into those knowing that there's going to be limitations there um, of that. It's the same thing when you study medicine. You know, I've studied my lifetime has been in the medical field studying medicines and every different system of medicine has its own particular geography of thought. And sometimes it provides a beautiful worldview, but sometimes it could be blinders and they only accept certain worldviews. And so you just have to understand that and then just kind of learn what you can for the moment and then move on from that. But you're absolutely right. When I was in religious studies and philosophy, I encountered that quite a bit. 
Well, especially if you realize that there's going to be a variety of views with, uh, within a field, why would yes. you study with someone whose views, who, who, who seems can't really take you, who, who won't even go in the direction of inquiry that you consider worthwhile? Right. right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's important. Yeah. Having a mentor or a teacher or someone that would encourage you to be creative in your thinking is very important. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure, you know, someone like Henri Bergson would have like given me a different answer than he did. It's a crazy <laughs> question to ask a philosophy professor at a university about auras, right? That's a stupid question in many regards. But I was just, you know, I was, well, I was in Portal in the Golden Dawn at the time. So, I was right, curious right. what what professional philosophers thought of such uh, you know newfangled new age ideas as as spiritual or psychism and stuff like that. And I was just curious. I was testing the waters. Yeah, I mean that's and then sometimes you know when you have philosophy professors or religious studies professors, um, we assume that as a professor that they're going to be schooled in all these different ideas, but sometimes they're very specialized and very myopic in only small areas. Um, and that's a, kind of a reality check too. But we have to kind of figure that out so that you know when you're going in, what the probably would have been is. A, it probably would have been a better question for a physicist or, a, or psychologist actually, or someone who studies uh, magnetic fields. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see, that's one thing you see uh, oftentimes. And even when I was in India, many of the Vedic scholars were typically physicists. And they were more wow. open to, they were much more open to really organic thinking and expansive thought and experimentation. So I always found that very interesting too. They weren't limited. And sometimes the philosophy teachers were very close-minded because they were just particularly schooled in one school of thought. And we see that when people study like Jungian studies or Freudian studies or Lacan or some, they're, they're just kind of only existing in the realm, um, which can be challenging if you're coming from a more esoteric background that's, that kind of hopes that everyone's going to be open-minded and, yeah. and creative. Thank you. you said my favorite, one of my, one of my magic words, Lacan. <laughs> right, right. I mean, those things are very important to understand and to, and to study. Um, and then I think that you'll find even many contemporary professors, they often, they, they just have, they don't, they find one field, they have to publish or perish to get their degrees and to get their tenure. And then, oh, yeah. field, you know, I mean, especially if they come from the analytical Anglo-American tradition, God doesn't exist. There's nothing right, right. special about the world whatsoever. There's just matter. Um, exactly, of course, exactly. of course, they don't know what the matter is unless they disagree with Sir Roger Penrose, which, in my opinion, is sort of foolish thing to do because he probably right. knows his stuff. Um, and you teach right. at a community college. So what the fuck are you talking about? Maybe listen yes. to the experts like the real experts, professor. Um, yes. So but you, that is a problem. Yeah. Uh, OK. Tantric physics. Uh, this is a new compilation book that you have out. I, I don't want to bury the lead here because people, I'm sure, are very interested in the beautiful books you've put out. Um, that's a new release of, of Tantric Physics 1 and 2 combined in a beautiful version from Anathema, is it? Yes, from Anathema yeah. Publishing. Uh -huh. And then you, you had a couple other books, Cult of Golgotha and Entering in the Desert. Entering the Desert, yeah, all that was published from Anathema Publishing. Uh -huh. So, so how, what, can you, what can you tell my listeners about Tantric Physics, the beautiful hardcover currently available, and the other two books? So what's Tantric Physics sort of about? And also, what's maybe the best book to start when reading your work? Yeah, I think you know, that's a great question. I mean, my, Tantric Physics, I was very happy to see us put both volumes together 
in this new edition, the first volume, which was Tantric Physics Volume One, Cave of the Numinous, was sold out for uh, quite a few years. And as often happens in the occult book market, it was going for just ridiculously disgusting prices on eBay. And so I really yeah. wanted us to get that re-released so that everyone could have access to it. And then the new volume, Tantric Physics Volume Two, Sacred Body, Sacred Space, that was, you know, we put that together. Uh, and my vision with Tantric Physics was just to have a completely comprehensive view of Tantra in all its facets, both Ayurveda, Vedanta, Tantra, Jyotish or Vedic Astrology, Vastu, Bhakti Yoga, all these different things, and just to show the wide spectrum of expression that has. Um, and so that's kind of a standalone book. Um, anyone could pick up tantric physics and not have to have read any of my other books. Um, and then the, entering the desert is probably a really wonderful text for people to start with who aren't particularly interested in Hindu studies. Um, I wrote entering the desert first and then after that, the cult of Golgotha. And so those two kind of, uh, they're connected, they kind of feed off each other. And they're, okay. con they're connected via unique things. So those two kind of go together as well. Yeah, I really liked Rudolph's comments about um, that into the desert one. Uh, he made some really lovely comments of Rudolph's a sharp, sharp, sharp wiener, of course. Um, Rudolph yeah, I was Berger, very happy. Uh, I was very happy with the reception to entering the desert and having it out in paperback. Now it can kind of travel the world. And it's, it's about to be translated into French which is always nice. Um, oh, wow. And so that's a, it's a, it's a book I wrote that I, I wanted people to be able to read and apply to any system they were working, whether they were a Christian or a pagan or a Thelemite or a Hindu, they could take something from entering the desert and apply it to their own personal path. That was my goal with that particular book. And, and though I haven't read your, your books yet, um, though it looks like I'll, I, I probably will, um, you seem to move quite comfortably in your in your writing and on your blog, and uh, from in from analytical and practical points of view into poetic, and then back again. I was I was at first that. I was surprised because you you look like a sort of a tough martial artist guy, um, you know, mm -hmm. and I was like, this is very poet. This is very this is very uh, nuanced, and and for someone who, you know, looks like they could give me a pounding. But then I was like, well, the, the, that is a huge part of the, the martial art ethos when you do it right, right? You know, it is, is this understanding of structure, form, especially I like to think a lot about the, the, the interaction of force and form. I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of Hermetic Kabbalah, in my opinion, is the whole four worlds broken down to force and form, looking at how the tetragrammaton relates to force and form, and then the whole structure plays out in a, into sure. a temple, temple concept of polarities. To me, that's that's where magic and sort of Western mystery Kabbalah um, has a lot of interplay with um, martial arts philosophies and, and and combat philosophies. My background being Bujinkan and fencing. Sure, sure. No, it does. Um, and I think a lot of people who aren't in the martial arts world might find that confusing. But if someone was a serious practitioner of any system, that would make complete sense. Because um, both uh, Kung Fu has such a long history of esoteric sides to it um, besides that. So even growing up, I was always fascinated with Kung Fu practitioners who demanded that their students be both poets and fighters. Um, and that was the arts, whether it was calligraphy, poetry, haiku, 
all those things were very important to martial artists um, back in the day. And so that really influenced me. And I love poetry. I grew up reading poetry and, you know, have a background in English literature. So that oh, was something great. which was, was, was always very important to me. And then it's also, you know, when you study in India, the bhakti transit, uh, tradition particularly, there's a lot of bhakti poets. And poetry is a beautiful way to express things that are hard to express. You know, so that's, I think, I appreciate you noticing that about my blog. And that's something in all my books, I kind of go back and forth between more yeah. te technical prose and then also have some inspired poetry as well. I'm definitely on the hunt for looking for permission to do that sort of thing myself. So I'm, I was, I, I, I was primed to notice something like that because it's, it's something I'd like to think that people are open to and, and just realizing that the occult publishing world has opened up in a lot of ways since, since, you know, when I was familiar with it in the nineties, um, it was a very sure. different scene, right? Like very different scene. Um, I, and, I think and I'm just yeah, still good. acclimatizing to the the, the new <laughs> world order of, of a culture, uh, which changed a lot uh, while I had while I was busy studying theology. <laughs> well, that's good that you that you gained a lot from your studies in theology. I'm sure, and you kind of bring back your new worldview into your writing, so that'll help that too. But I think you know, unfortunately, a lot of people just are not exposed to poetry. They, they, they either didn't grow up reading it or they don't read it and they don't understand it. So sometimes that can be hard for people. But for me, poetry is very important to express esoteric concepts and also to literally form a bridge between understanding states of consciousness that are hard to express with really limited verbal vocabulary in general. Mm -hmm. And poetry yeah. can do that. Po poetry can reveal nuances and can speak in symbol and metaphor and contradiction in ways that are very important, um, and especially in a world which continuously moves closer and closer to just pure materialism. Um, it's To me, it's kind of a monkey wrench in that as well, too. Yes, it is. It can be very subversive and uh, destabilizing to, uh, you know, um, uh, total totalizing structures of thought or, or language. And it is very much the language of the ineffable, right? If you can't say something, yes. then you, then you say it in poetry. And many people have told me they can't stand poetry. And then over their acquaintance with me, of course, they've been forced to hear many poems recited, which is right. just, you know, it's just a requirement. And next thing you know, they're like, you know, it's really different when someone really recites it. Well, it's like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> that is, it's that huge, is what right? it was designed for. Um, it's very important. It's, it's like it's, reading reading music on a sheet of paper versus listening to it yeah yeah when i read poems by other poets i if i have if i'm if i if i'm in the right space i read it out loud for sure yes absolutely yeah. so i'm i'm glad that you have that inspiration that's a, a very important thing and I, I wish more people would be exposed to that yeah well my entry into all of this is yates scholarship so that's where i sort of started off uh, was, of course yeah Perfect. yeah yeah and uh Who's uh, who, what sort of you got any uh, poets that influenced you mainly? When I was young, I mean, I really loved Yeats, uh, Wordsworth, Browning. And then as I got older, Milton. And then as I got older even more, then I kind of got into more contemporary styles, um, Robert Browning and post generations from that. And so that's something that even today, continuing to, to discover new poets is always very interesting to me. Um, and that's when I initially 
you know, growing up, literature to me was a very alive world that allowed me to kind of form my imagination. And at the same time, I was growing up studying the occult and Hinduism and esoteric studies. So to me, it all fed back and forth. And in seeing India, sacred literature is a very important part of the process of study and learning. So there's, there's poetry, there's legends, there's myths, and all those hold very important teachings. Um, yeah. So that was always, I always saw it to me, and literature was just another world we could enter into to transform our consciousness and to penetrate different dimensions of thought. And so when I got old enough to, you know, go off to college, then it made sense that, oh, that, you know, I could study poetry and do the same thing that they were doing in India. So I just kind of, you know, did that way too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did I hear something about a, a month in isolation in India or Nepal or somewhere? Uh, well, I mean, I've been to India some, several times, but when on my trip to one of my trips to Mount Kailas, which we had to spend some time through into Tibet, it was about a month. And that's where I got most of my inspiration to write Entering the Desert. Um, and so once you go kind of into Tibet, it gets where there's not much at all. It's very sparse. And so that was about a month in that as well. So I wouldn't say complete isolation, but definitely away from modern culture um, in a way, you know, when you're 30,000 feet up in the Himalayas, it's definitely a different atmosphere than if you're hanging out in a city in India. Um, so that, that transforms your thought. And even if someone would go to Tibet and to the deserts of Tibet, you can clearly see why Buddhism developed their concepts of the void why Buddhism developed their concepts mm. of nothingness. It's directly influenced by the environment for which they were living in. Yeah, it's really good to hear you say that, actually. It's not something I've heard about. Um, I've not heard that said uh, regarding any Eastern stuff before, but obviously it makes sense. Um, uh, tantric physics as a book, like how does it, does it, does it speak to both the Western and the Eastern minds I'm, I'm very i'm very interested in that the the struggle between eastern and western paths like i grew up yeah, in yeah, embedded in, in in the maharishi world maharishi family bhagavad mm -hmm. gita instead of the bible ayurveda mm -hmm. instead of regular doctors like you know mm -hmm. we, we were homeopaths and and all that stuff growing up it was a shock to the system to discover that there was this christian world out there for me <laughs> right, then, right, you right. know it was really it was a shock um i was like wait everyone doesn't meditate twice a day don't they get in yes. trouble if they don't because i do i get a right. time out just like third meditation time right um and it was really one of the you know probably one of the coolest things about my my childhood was getting those initiations at like age seven and then ten you know for the mantras mm -hmm. And, and that's, that whole experience was very, was very powerful, but I've, I've definitely felt ever since then a conflict between the Eastern and Western paths. The Eastern path just didn't, didn't resonate very much with me. Um, mm -hmm. But, and also I found uh, the way it played out in my environment. Ooh, how do I say this? Yeah. It played, it played out in a way that made it hard to respect the adults around me as I grew up. Sure. Sure. You know, the, the sort of the emphasis on trans uh, transcending issues rather than dealing with them, you know, like if, yes. if, if you're a kid, especially teenager, and you're trying to go to a, a family member or family friend and, and, and deal with an issue and bring something up to them. Sometimes they don't 
really, you know, sir, it seemed to me that because of that sort of transcendental meditation spirituality, that there was a desire to like, look, look, don't bring your, don't bring these problems to me. This is, this is negative energy. I don't want to, this is not healthy. You've got issues. Right. And that didn't really help. You know, it's like, I didn't really, it, it just didn't work. And so I ended up finding hermeticism, Wicca, Druidry, and all these Western paths that to me felt more embodied where it was like, there wasn't something wrong with me. If I struggled with an issue in life, the solution wasn't just to meditate, calm down and then try and not think about it it seemed like a way of, of spiritual bypassing is what they call it these days that's what the kids are calling it right yeah no that you bring up a lot of important points and there there can be a really what i refer to as a dangerous fantasy of escapism um, in eastern thought and we see that quite a bit and that's one of the benefits of the worldview of tantra tantra does not seek to escape anything tantra seeks to embrace the entire human experience um, as, as well as the Agora path, which this is typically my path. And so there's nothing, you don't run away from anything, you confront and embrace everything. Um, but that is a problem. A lot of people's understanding of yoga tends to be, it's this, this transcended escapism, but that's also the same thing in, in some Gnostic schools as well too. They have this idea of that the body is a prison and the soul is trapped here and they must escape from this this realm and it's very similar mm. to the concept the concept of samsara or trying to escape from this prison that we're locked into and you can even see that a lot in the ishkan or the Hare krishna movement and their idea was we must escape this horrible realm and maybe one day if we're lucky enough we can leave here and so there's problems with that it causes a lot of people to run from their problems and not face their issues so i totally understand where you're coming from with that um i, I think a well, lot it of seems the, like you're tackling the problem in your book yeah no that is that's kind of my pull point and and even kind of emphasizing tantra is that tantra is about being human and exploring what it means to be human and embracing all the human emotions and all the human experiences and even my i always have to talk about that when i write my books whether it's entering the desert or, or cult of golgotha or future books or things on my blog and i often have to say what when i refer to gnosticism or the gnosticism that i teach or practice is not a transcendental escapism at all it's something to explore the human experience and find that within the human experience and so that can be a bit tricky because some people are used to the old academic definition of gnosticism as a prison this dichotomy between spirit and matter and things like that and so that's kind of why i even use the phrase tantric physics was to try to show people that there is like literally a physics here and that's a very complicated idea of matter and energy and consciousness all interweaved um, there's not a big separation for that yeah beautiful um, but, you know you but you bring up an important point i mean i think a big part of someone's path what they choose to follow is pure karma it's 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 really what they need to follow what they feel drawn to and, uh, you know, Carl Jung and both Rudolf Steiner both clearly stated that most people in the West were not suited to follow the Eastern past, you know, due to their background, due to their studies, due to things they just weren't raised yeah. with understanding. Of, you know, so it's a challenge. You yeah. know, I, yeah. I, I think it depends on someone's background, what they're exposed to. And then it also depends on their karma. If it's something they're just not drawn to. Um, I never tell everyone that, oh, you must only study the Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam, and you must only study the Upanishads. Um, that's why I wrote Entering the Desert. That's why I wrote Cult of Gagathas. I wanted people to see that, although, yes, I am a Hindu and I am a devotee and an Agora, that's my path. 
I was also born in America and I was also born in a family that was not schooled in Eastern thought. So I had these other experiences too, and that's okay. People don't have to feel that like that if they're not a Hindu, then there's something's wrong. So I loved hearing your story. That's fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that. Oh yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, it was cool. I'm glad you mentioned Steiner because I uh, that was definitely my my other the reason I was able to transition sort of easily. I was K through 12 in Waldorf school. Um, so oh, when wonderful. I started, so when I yeah, exactly, it was. So when I started having problems with the Eastern spirituality, and those problems arose as soon as my parents got divorced, right? Because it's like, you're, you're, you've been making me meditate twice a day and, and, and now you guys can't even talk to each other and you know, this yes, big right. acrimonious yep. separation. Then my dad got involved with some woman who was incredibly abusive to us. And it's like, what happened to our whole, the whole way you raised us? It's like, yes. what happened to that? It just, is it all a sham? Okay, I'm going to become a Wiccan. Fuck you guys. Well, I mean, pardon my French, but go to hell. No, I mean, it's interesting that your perspective on that, because we often, that's a very honest evaluation. You know, it it would be the same thing as if you were studying with, say, a martial arts teacher, and every time you saw them fight, they just were, they were, couldn't fight. They just were either would get beat or were unable to defend themselves. After a while, you'd be like, what is happening here? What are you teaching? What's going on? And so those are very, that's a good critical thinking. We always want to look and see, you know, what is someone's practice and and how are they applying it in their lives? I think that's a very important question. Yeah. 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 Um, I figured you're the kind of guy I could maybe ask these honest questions of and have a, because you, you also have Martinism in your veins, yes? Yes. Yes. I mean, I, um, and you're a, a bishop, Gnostic bishop. Right. I mean, you mentioned Steiner. I was very lucky. I believe I think it was 11 or 12. I believe when I was 12, I was able to get a copy of Knowledge of Higher Worlds and its attainment. And yep. that book completely changed that book completely changed my life. Amen. And so I, I, re, I really felt a deep connection to Steiner as a child and his studies and his approach. And so I was very lucky to be raised in a very liberal Lutheran family. Um, and my parents were um, I love Lutherans, Catholic, and they, they sent me to Catholic schools all my life. We were not. Yeah, Catholic. <laughs> Catholics so, are most know, so schools are mostly run by Anglicans and Lutherans. That's the yeah. dirty secret. So, yeah. so you know why? It, it's because the Catholic teachers are are too weird. Yeah, so <laughs> I was like, very. <laughs> sorry, it's, it, it, it's no, just it's such okay, a big no. thing. It's such a joke. It's a big joke among us religious educators, right? Like you know. Because you go to a Catholic school, you go talk, if you go talk to the teachers, most of them are Anglicans or Lutherans, some Presbyterians. Right. Like, where's all the Catholic teachers? Well, Catholic yeah. teachers tend to be a little bit too hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> you when know, grow, for, and, for dealing with actual children. And growing up in Louisiana was a very unique Catholic culture because it was also, it was such steeped in French uh, ideas and Creole ideas and then the Southern twist on that. And that's why... I was so interested even in esoteric Christianity and, and even Haitian, there was a lot of Haitian immigrants down there. So that's where I was exposed to many ideas from Haitian voodoo and even Haitian Martinism. So even growing wow. up, all those, con- all those concepts were very comfortable. I was very comfortable with that. I've, I definitely felt more of a, of a karmic calling toward Hinduism, but I never felt disconnected from the other systems as well. So Rudolf Steiner and Aleister Crowley were very important to me growing up. Um, um, and I, yeah, I, that's not something that I just gave up 
as I studied Hinduism, I just found deeper connections between them because of that. But it did always fascinate me that Steiner was very clear. And he would say, you know, most people are not going to be able to take that journey to the East, that they need to do something different. And, and, and my Cult of Golgotha book is, a, is definitely deeply influenced by Steiner's ideas of the mystery of Golgotha and many of the yeah. things he wrote about as well. You use the word uh, aromatic in the in a way that clearly yes. must come from him. Must come from yes, him, right? yeah. yeah, straight from him. Yeah, yes, that's, a, yeah. that's a big thing. Yeah, I was so I wanted to ask you that. I was like, did yeah. you read some Steiner? Because it looks like yeah, yeah, Steiner is very important, especially his teachings of Lucifer and Ariman are yeah. incredibly important, and that's that's seeped all throughout my Cult of Golgotha book. Is it's a large amount of material from that, and how it influenced me as my in my youth, and even and even today. Well, you'll like this. Not many people will appreciate this because, but you've read Lucifer and Araman by Steiner. Mm -hmm. And so you'll mm -hmm. get this. So the Waldorf school alternates a different mystery play each year that is put on by teachers yes. and, and alums. And so I've been in them twice, but the once as a kid in, in like a shepherd's play. And then as an adult, just after I graduated, I was asked to come back and be uh, in, in the mystery play that centers around Herod losing his soul to the devil after doing all the bad Herod stuff. And I was right. like, oh, so so who am I going to play? And it was directed by a famous actor in town because Vancouver's like Hollywood North. And we so we had really good people involved in the school that were big in film and giving us really good training while we were acting yeah, all yeah. at school, which was a blessing. And I was like, so who am I playing? He's like, well, you're Araman. I'm oh, like, what? And it's like, because in this mystery play, it's the Araman side of the devil that is portrayed whereas in this play yes. it's the lucifer devil and so you're araman and so you know i just i just went with it plus i was at the height of my ninjutsu training so i was like doing 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 acrobatics and shit and carried herod off over my shoulders off the stage jumping him through the crowd you know all that fun yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. No, those, um, those very mystery, different those energy yes yeah those mystery plays are very beautiful and very powerful so that's very wonderful you were, you were able to expose to that. But yeah, a lot of people aren't familiar with the nuances between Steiner's concept of Lucifer and Ariman, but they're very important. Yeah, very, I'm not sure important. if he sees them as, do you think he really saw them as, as, as distinct beings or as sort of processes within nature? That I mean, he clearly felt that they were two different cosmic forces, obviously working so, yeah. in the great soup together you know yeah but he felt but he felt that they were definitely two different forces that were working to crystallize a certain function in the human being um and, and then it was up to each person about how they were going to go back and forth between that pole you know that's a tricky thing so yeah tantric physics i um I, i'd like to know more if that's possible like sure what what sort of problems does it seek to solve and and is it seen is it is it a good book like a lot of people think think okay let's let's address the elephant in the room for those so a lot of listeners still think of tantra as sex right right tantra sure, is not sex sure. it's it's all it's almost a word like doctrine rather or it right, has some connections right. with the idea of things also glitching a bit or breaking uh, in its etymology i noticed or un yeah, unravel. Tantra, is, Tantra is a complete worldview um, which contains an, many, many different paths. And so since it is rooted in worship of the goddess and of Sri Vidya, of course, sexuality can be a part of it. But the Western 
and European concepts, of course, really kind of glamorized that, um, just much like they glamorized kind of like very strange things from African religions and Haitian religions where they, you know, they made it kind of fetishized it and it became very kind of strange. Same thing happened, you know, to India, but the tantric stuff is sometimes very strange and sometimes very beautiful, but Tantra in general is just a kind of a worldview where it sees the entire world as the body of the goddess and as the expression of the goddess. I didn't and realize so, it was so in intimately related with the idea of the goddess. Yes, it's a foundational aspect of that. And so that they see the entire world as an expression of the goddess and she is there to help us understand that or to give us an illusion. So she either becomes yoga maya or mula maya. So she can either become something which kind of gives us illusions or something which gives us enlightenment. It all depends on our perspective. Um, and so then, of course, the goddess tradition in India is so huge. And there's so many different goddesses that exist. And so it's, it's a beautiful system um, with that as well. So sexuality can be a part and it's feminine part, but it's also related to Shiva, to Krishna, to Ganesh, to all the other different you know, deities that it goes with that as well. Hmm. How does that, how does that uh, inter, interact with you in your life as a Gnostic bishop, as a, as a Martinist? and as a Hindu Tantrist? For me, you know, Tantra is my foundation of understanding life. It's my that's foundation. The, that's of, the bedrock, hey? That's the bedrock. That's I always so, call it. That's like my, my taproot. So I guess in that way, in that way, I'm sort of curious how Martinism, especially because Martinism is quite related from what Paul and my other friends have told me um, to, to what I know in Hermeticism already. And that's why I make the comparison. Plus, I'm curious about Martinism and Maywell. You know, let let Jeff and Paul uh, uh, bring me in when I when I visit Austin. Um, how is how do you find that 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 tantra base of and Hinduism expresses itself through the Martinism? Like, is Martinism in some way it's an extension in a practical sense? How does the the work and ritual and initiation of Martinism express? your Hindu faith and, and tantric spirituality? So that's a very good question. Um, and that's something which I will write a lot more of in the coming years. But in general, I see it. You strike as me as someone with many more books in you, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, definitely some more books coming. But <clears throat> I definitely see the path of Martinism as a unique expression of Sophia. And the whole Sophianic tradition within es esoteric, whether someone wants to call it esoteric Christianity or Martinism per se, the, the, the role of the feminine and the role of Sophia is vital in all ritual and mm. all initiatic work. And, and that's why, you know, the study of such Gnostic texts as Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, the Hymn of the Pearl, <clears throat> all these texts are very important to me. Well, that's and interesting. Yeah. If, sorry. Go, you go? go on. Oh go. no, I just I was excited to hear you mention those. If I if I do do the do do my uh, doctorate in uh, in Austin, it will be in the Nag Hammadi because there's a guy there who I could handle, probably handle working with who that's specialty in Coptic and Nag Hammadi. So if I do bite oh, the bullet wonderful. on a PhD in Austin, that will probably be what I'm studying because I could handle that. I I mean you know I've already got the Hebrew and Aramaic background, so Coptic. I could spend the rest of my life just translating Coptic in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, 
in a mobile home on some ranch in Texas. Why not? Why not? And that could be well, that could that could be a, a very fruitful karmic path to, to do. So. Uh, but yeah, no, those those texts are very interesting. The pseudepigrapha of the Gnostic and Christian traditions, whether it's Dead Sea Scrolls or Nagamati, they are worthy of, of of a lifetime of study. So that there's definitely nothing well that and so so it's the goddess that is the yeah. common bedrock between these two things that tie them fundamentally down to, together sort of at their ontological core for you with without a doubt that's that's my foundational metaphysics is this idea of a sophianic tradition or a sri vidya or the goddess tradition and that links them together um and that's where i see the expression the linking with that um of course you know if we can if someone studies the nag hammadi text and someone is has an educational background or an esoteric esoteric background in hindu thought one can clearly see connections between krishna and christ and one can clearly see that you know many of the story all of the stories of krishna predated the mystery plays of christ so there's definitely some overlap going on there about what was spreading out from india what was going to other cultures um so for so for me uh, and also due to my studies in Steiner, I see clear connection between these systems. However, I don't force them together in some garbage soup that, that, that is just kind of cramming everything together and saying like, everything's the same, all is one. I don't subscribe to that worldview. I think everything is distinctly different and has to be approached in its unique methodology and its unique praxis and respected in its unique representation. Um, so, you know, someone might study Hinduism all their life and have no desire to, to be a Martinist. And I would completely understand that. But I grew up with very unique experiences from an esoteric Christian background and very influenced by Haitian spirituality and spiritualist church that I grew up in being exposed to. So Martinism was very natural to me. Mm. Um, and as a, as a practicing Martinist, you know, the rituals give me great inspiration and, and I see deep connections of that to different traditions. And so it's very easy for me. Um, but if someone would to read tantric physics, I don't think they would say, oh, that guy's a Martinist. <laughs> they wouldn't, you know, most people are quite surprised to know I'm a Martinist, to be honest. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. Because no. they tend to look, they tend to see me as a Hindu or, or you know, yeah. Vedic teacher, which is fine. That's that's essentially is what I am. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the Martin the Martinist rituals, of course, involve some degree of grimoire magic and even evocational magic, whether it's with yes. uh, angel, angels yes. or demons, right? So yes, that would which fit is nicely into your Hindu background. Oh, it's completely complete evocational content. tools at your facility yes. to you know to just like let's work let's bring up this demon let's bring up this angel let's bring up the spirit rather and yes tantra, and, was, tantra and, was full of that mm, yeah so tantra that's was, a very tantra was full, crossover yeah. yeah tantra was full of rituals full of magic full of incant incantations that's what made that's why everybody was so frightened and, and tantra became so weird and mystical to most people because it was typically doing strange rituals in the graveyard or particularly agora practice they were using skull caps and invoking demons and and things like that so that makes all that's very comfortable territory for me so martinism mm. is very easy so and that's where i also too that that sophianic link is the goddess with that link it comes through that as well too 
So do you see demons as demons? What do you see demons as, given your uh, quote-unquote mixed worldview? Well, I think I definitely don't take the approach that they're just psychological. Um, I definitely, I don't, I think they function through psychology. They have to function or interact with us through a human nervous system. So of course our psyche and psychology is involved, but I don't take a very um, kind of materialistic viewpoint and, and not believing that there's something, another type of consciousness for me, there's the world is a wide spectrum of intelligences. That's a very tantric worldview and the intelligence exists in a many different dimensions that are interpenetrating ours at the same time. And so I think just as we have intelligences in other dimensions, which can be very, very balanced and very peaceful, some can be very asuric or aggressive um, and some can be very evil. Uh, it's a great mix. And so that's kind of where I see that uh, going on. And then, of course, that's a very nuanced subject. I mean, because you could, that brings up the whole concept of like egregores, cultural egregores, you know, religious egregores within the systems, how that functions. But I definitely personally um, subscribe to view that there are different intelligences and different dimensions that we can contact or that can contact us. Um, that have their own independent existence. I don't believe that when someone's doing a Martinus ritual, that it's just all in their head. That it's just a you know just a psychological performance for them to get at something. That's that's not the worldview that I subscribe to. I I really think that that uh, dichotomy between uh, sort of animistic spirit model and psychological model is something that has really only become a thing. Uh, like sort of a, uh, after my my time, like in in the very recent yeah, yeah, years, yeah. it sort of came up around the mid to the mid two thousands. It seemed when when and 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 it, I I think that it's they it was some authors putting out a false dichotomy to to emphasize what they did when what they did was already taken for granted. But once they put out the false dichotomy, they were able to create this sort of sensational uh false sensationalism about the reality of what they were actually doing versus what others who who were just looking at the psychology were doing when in fact i think what was going on was you had people who were paying attention to the role that psychology plays in it not necessarily yes. completely limiting themselves to this is all it is and we no longer accept an objective reality whatsoever it's all in right. our heads i think some authors took those sort of ideas that, you know, lawn, you just don't know how big your head is and, and other, you know, the studies of Rigardi investigated the psychology at play within uh, esoteric spiritualities and magical practices. But then some people started coming out and saying, look, this is a bunch of people just think this, but we think we know this is the case. And I think it was a false dichotomy from the get go. And I think it was done. It felt when I looked into it and saw the many articles and all the dichotomies between those views set up, I just, it really, it, it gave me a bad feeling in my tummy. Like I sensed yeah. some, sh some chicane, chicanery going on there. Like, okay, I don't know either. I think they're not giving full credit to the people investigating the psychology or they are just wanting to to hold what they're doing up to a higher degree of, of quality than people who might say, hey, there's nothing wrong with dealing with spirit astrally, like Jake Stratton Kent would be say, he, I, he's a nice defender of 
people who appreciate uh, uh, these arts full range, right? He, he has no problem with talking with the spirit astrally, and he doesn't make assume that that means it's not really there because if it was really there, he could see it with his physical senses. Right. So, you know, the fact that he, he sort of punched back to that uh, on that front, I was really glad to discover because it's like, okay, here's someone who's still making sense. Um, I, the whole thing, it was never an issue when I was coming up and I just think it's not a real issue. The psychological yeah, model. No. And it, it's very important to be educated and then to understand that it's like, it's much like a, you know, I, I practice, I'm a East Asian medical practitioner. I practice Chinese medicines and I'm also high. You're a TCM trained, guy. Right? Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. That's what I do Doc, for doctor all, doctor. So that's my life. And so that's, but I'm also trained in Western medicine, but I, I, I can see the bridges between these worldviews and they're both very important. And so I don't say that only one worldview is the only way, but they're both interpenetrating back and forth. And so learning psychology and, and the nuances of psychology is very important um, with that as well, too, uh, and all those things that, that kind of encompass with that. So I think it's we just have to really expand our mind and understand there's such a large ocean of consciousness out there and then it can express itself in different ways and uh, ocean of consciousness has an infinite number of intelligences that are very mysterious and some yeah. you know and, you know and so some quote demons can come via through one's mind and only cause psychological problems others might appear in other places in other ways in, in a more materialistic manifestation in other ways it's very it's very complex and so i think that to me is very beautiful uh, and that's also an expression of tantra tantra always had a yoga psychology along with the ritual work to understand how that was working on the different facets of the mind now of course yoga sees the mind as a much more complex thing than the western concept of mind but they're very important to know both and to explore both yeah yeah what do you think is going on with evil intelligences you know those really dark little demons that don't seem to have any redeeming skills that they can lend to us or <laughs> advice they can give us the ones that that are like are they just sort of manifestations or 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 rulers of like you know destructive natural processes that that are at play in in nature and reality and we just happen to be able to contact and talk to them in certain forms but maybe all their duty is to do with like the process of when skin, you know, degrades after someone dies and, the, sure, you know, sure. it dissolves. It's like, are you talking to that spirit? Because it probably doesn't know much other than how tissue degenerates, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, but what no, do you a, think evil yeah. intelligence are? No, I think that's a really good distinction there, too. I mean, you know, when we look at the, the Vedic creation myth, it was, you know, both the Asuras or the demons and the Devas worked together to create the world. They were both having a tug of war with the serpent to create the world. And so they're both these two cosmic forces that both work in tandem in this particular dimension and other dimensions too. Um, and then from an agoric worldview, everything has a spark of divinity in it. Um, it. So that to me is something which everything functions in some part of the whole. Um, and we, as we even kind of touched on a little bit, it's that's even Steiner would mention that from time to time, but yes, even though these forces that they have their own function to be a certain way um, to cause a certain 
environment which is conducive for the evolution of consciousness if everyone is involved and if everyone is taking part in their play if someone else if someone is not trying hard to evolve then the asuric forces can be very negative it'll just continue to have someone go down 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 into more darker states of consciousness more tamasic realms of being but if someone is trying to evolve then that becomes a kind of a tension for them much like it's much like training like say iron palm training in kung fu we have to break our hands down to get it stronger and if we do the right things if we put the right medical jowls on there if we do the right techniques then our hands come out super strong and if we don't do the right things we just have injuries we, we just we're in pain so yeah. it's, it's all it's all about this cosmic tension uh, with that and all the spectrums are there and of course these are these are concepts that were you know like the Kabbalah and the uh, clearly discusses these things, um, you know, the Klefoth and the, all this, all those different concepts. And so Tantra was very open to the idea that both the Suric spirits and the spirits of light or devas were all, they're working in tandem. They're working back and forth. A good example would be like, say this, the planet Venus, Shukra in Vedic astrology was considered to be a very important planet for the Vedic priest, but it was also the planet of the demons. Um, and that was they, they were, you know, they would often have these myths and, and Vedic thought about how were the demons on Venus getting so strong, you know, they were getting so much power and they were starting to defeat the devas and um, uh, many of the myths they would either call on Brahman or they would call on the goddess and ask why and it was very clear they would say because the demons were working very hard. The demons were very dedicated to the work. The, 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 the demons were doing the <laughs> yeah. The demons were doing the tapas required, and they're like, "So sorry, we gave them the secrets. You could also work harder too, and then everyone would be okay." And so that was kind of a myth. Even within tantra, they had these esoteric teachings which would flip those roles and say that, "Okay, hey, it's not just as easy as to say black and white is only this or it's only that." Um, so I think one has to take a more nuanced, you know, view of that. I, I, I personally see them as cosmic forces that are playing a very important part in the evolution of the universe and evolution of consciousness in this dimension and other dimensions too, as well. Mm. But it doesn't mean that they're not dangerous and doesn't mean that they're not, they don't cause a certain way, you know? Well, yeah. Well, I'm sort of curious because there's, you know, it's it's not everyone we can ask some of these questions to. Uh, I mean, if you haven't had experience in some of these things, it's it's even if you have had several many experiences in some of these uh, more subtle realms, it's it can be still incredibly hard to to think about or try and configure them as you as you've said in past podcasts in the, in a holographic framework. Right, right, right. So right. Exactly. how do we think of these things in, in terms that make any sort of sense to us at all? And, and I mean, that's such a such an important and impossible thing, which, you know, if you, if you haven't experienced that with raw, sober spirituality, well, you might have experienced it or you could experience it with like DMT or some other entheogens, right? Like that right, being right. in a place that doesn't make any sense compared to this place, however, seems more realistic and it feels more at home. And yet for some reason, it's impossible to describe or even really understand where you are. But in those realms, I've encountered many realms and many different beings. So often I'm in realms that are full of beings, like 
it's like, oh, this is what they mean by infinite spirits, because I'm just in one place, and there's like almost seemingly infinite spirits here, and they all seem to be set about the same task. They're wondering why I just popped here, popped in here, and I'm not doing what they're doing. And so right. they like either, either right. give me the boot, or I need to, to get out of there, or I can just watch the show and then sl slip out as one does naturally. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, I think these are very much, you know, we could even take some of these concepts and discuss what a lot of people call alien intelligences or extraterrestrial or things like that. There are just other dimensions of intelligences that are functioning in their own dimensions. And sometimes there's a perichoresis or an interpenetration of these dimensions. And oftentimes they're just as surprised to see us as we are to see them. Other times there's more nefarious things going on. Other times there's not. It's, it's very complex. So I think a lot of people would really love it to be just black and white. This is that. This is evil. That's good. But it's not that, it's not that clear. It's almost like the black and white tiles on the floor. It's like the universe as you, that you're standing on or standing in is, can be separated into these two. But the second you step on it, all this complexity arises because those two opposing forces, force exactly. and form or whatever, as soon as they enter your experience, you have a plethora of infinite reality caused by that polarity almost. Exactly. Soon, your experience of a polarity triggers almost infinitude, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, no, I would agree. That's absolutely true. That's uh, a very important concept. And that's even a very important concept of, of the idea of Golgotha and the mystery of Golgotha. There's this it's the, a doorway between two different realms and there's a communication there's a kind of a seeping back and forth of these different perceptions of reality and so they they can meet at a, whether you have a vertical force and a horizontal force there's, there's going to be meeting points and those meeting points can shift up and down all around depending on what someone's work does depending on what their karma is depending on what tradition they come from it's it, it's all those things play a role and we see that even in like Vedic astrology, they talk about some of the planets being malefic, some of the mm. planets being benefic, but they're all playing a role to create a certain environment so that people can evolve. That's, that's how it is. Someone could look at Saturn and go, oh, Saturn's malefic. Saturn's so scary and dangerous. But in reality, it's not. Saturn's a great teacher. Saturn's a wonderful doorway for us to slow down and understand our karma and understand what it means to learn and to grow. Um, and it's not always about a certain, only one perspective of reality. And for example, the sun, we tend to think of the sun as a bringer of light and it's a symbol of cosmic prana, um, obviously light in general, but in Vedic astrology, it's also considered a malefic. It will harm you. It's very dangerous, it burns you. And any kind of house that has the, the sun in it is called, it goes into combustion. So it's not always so clear cut about like, this is good, that's bad. You know, it's much, much, much more nuanced. And so when we start talking about demons, I mean, I'm always skeptical of anyone who talks about the quote demons when the only thing they can give me is a very antiquated Christian perspective. When I hear that, I'm just almost not even interested. Um, at that yeah. point, I, it's just like, it's, it's like partisan politics. It's just like, I just don't want to hear it. I just don't want to hear it because you, you already know what you're, you already know what you're going to get. You, you know, you can just read the person's bio and go, okay, they're going to believe this. Okay. This person's going to believe this. 
um, you know, that's how it goes. And so to me, I find that very boring and, and I find it so uncreative um, and, and so limiting and, and it's, it's the world is much more complicated and nuanced and contradictory um, than that. And so, yeah, you're telling me we just had an election and I didn't, I didn't know which way to vote. It seems so hopeless. But at the end, I did the same thing I always do and basically vote for housing because we have a homeless problem in Vancouver. That oh, is, that is uh, okay. well, every, it's the only place you can survive outside in the winter or have a chance of surviving outside in the winter in Canada. So if you go homeless in Canada, they put you on a one-way bus to Vancouver and give well, you a pair of shoes. Your, your so and we, it's totally different. Yeah. And we true. don't, and yeah. the, but, but, but the federal funding doesn't account for the fact that we have all of the provinces homeless sent here. And so we have them all on the street and it's a, it's a disaster and has been as a disaster my whole life. And I've worked a lot in the systems, uh, especially the church systems to alleviate that and to help it. I've seen it from the inside and it's like, there's no, the only party that gives a shit about that is like, obviously our radical left party, but they also want to do a bunch of other crazy things that don't make any sense. Plus every time they get in power, they, they're, they're a shit show. So it's like, Oh, you know, it's either that or I can vote for the, you know, conservatives and the corporate shills. So what's the point? And you mentioned politics on one of the podcasts I listened to you and I really loved that you just right away hit the nail on the head. And we're like, yeah, anyone who's into this divisive sectarian stuff without realizing that they're all a bunch of scumbags. Oh, right. <laughs> it's right. like, it's like, you know, when people, some people are excited when they hear me trash uh, 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 you know, the Clintons or, or whoever on the left, if you can call the Clintons the left, right? Exactly. Here's exactly the problem, right? And, and then, they're, then they're like, they say something about, you know, something right-wing or Trump. And I'm like, he's just as bad. They're all bad. They're all just like, a it's bunch just, of, it's like, what are you talking just, about? No, it's just nauseating to witness that. I know that's one of my, God rest his soul. I was uh, Norm MacDonald, one of my favorite comedians, you know, God bless. God, God bless. bless. That yes, that man was just a complete, just such a unique person. And to see him just make fun of people in politics was just so hilarious because he was, you know, he would, so you could clearly see someone was really to call, so ready to call <laughs> some side a demon, but then they were definitely not ready to call their side a demon. It was just, so I think, but that's, but that's very, see, that's a very, that's a big influence of Ariman. See, Ariman wants to break things into these two factions. It wants to break things into only this or that, and it allows no nuance and it allows no discussion. And, it, and so it causes a, a rapid increase in fundamentalism. On, and, and so you'll have partisan fundamentalism, you have religious fund, fundamentalism, um, obviously, the, you know, political fundamentalism, scientific fundamentalism, all that is the clear influence of that autonomic force um, on our, our contemporary times that Steiner wrote about extensively. Um, yeah, so I think that yeah. So, but that's fascinating to hear you're you're talking about the environment. I remember talking, seeing pictures of Montreal in the winter one time, and I asked my friend, "What do what what do they do for the homeless people?" And he said, "There are no homeless people. You can't yeah. survive. No, or, yeah, you, no, you, you, you die. It just you just would not survive." And I was like, "Oh, negative wow. negative forty. Yeah, yeah. Just that's the same exist. as in same as in Fahrenheit. Negative forty. Yeah." If yeah. you're dead, so it's, you, you, yeah, it's, yeah. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you people would have to be concerned about their local and literally environment. We, we hear that term talked about a lot, environment, but like literally, we're talking about that too. So that's very interesting. Yeah, it's, but in Texas, it must be it must be 
no okay i i, I was gonna say then i realized that's ignorant i, I was gonna say in, in texas it must be just as hard to survive outside in like 120 degree heat but then i was like okay, I, no, I think it's you, no yeah it's easier it's not than, as hard no it's miserable but it's not like cold cold yeah. still worse yeah it might be sure. impossible to escape the heat but the heat won't flat out kill you in one night no or one day yeah, yeah necessarily exactly. yeah and then you oh, can okay. find shade you could find a shaded place somewhere but you can't find shade if it's freezing temperatures it's if you don't have you know yeah so yeah the cold I, is cold the cold is brutal yeah. yeah i'd still rather deal with the cold than the extreme heat so i know that's yeah. <laughs> my, my uh my you know some some possible plans in question but you know at least in the cold you can warm yourself up but when you're like yeah, my, yeah. The, my my i was last i i just spent 14 months in northern california up and through covid up until last equinox and uh and the heat would be so bad my body's not used to it right like it was just oh like, right right if i would move i would have to i would vomit <laughs> So there was there was days where every time I got up to go do something, I'd have to stop in the bathroom and like sort of spit up because my body couldn't handle the heat. It just wasn't used to 115 degrees. You know, no, it's it's what you get used to. I grew up in Louisiana, so it was just so hot, yeah. uh, so humid. So I kind of got used to it. But my favorite is having four perfect seasons. That's my ideal. And so that's um, we do have some it. pretty amazing uh, force uh, uh, autumns here in Vancouver. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's just so beautiful. The pictures are just breathtaking. So that's yeah. No, Vancouver. Like I, uh, we've always been lucky living where we do in Vancouver. Anyone who lives in Vancouver is pretty lucky. It's like a gorgeous place. Just you know, it's insanely expensive now, but it, right, uh, that's a, right, that's a right. new phenomena. That's a, that's because of the uh, the deals that we made with uh, China. <laughs> right right what could have what who could have foreseen that deals they, they would go those deals would go bad and that they would not try to that they that they would be hostile to our native population who could have foreseen that <laughs> but yeah, I think no. one of the things that you know we're when we were talking about you know demons and consciousness is that's you know one other unique thing about the tantric world view is that it's a human experiences and within that human experiences has all these different expressions of consciousness good evil bad dark light happy sad all of those things and so that's uh, another reason why you know the expressions even of the goddess in india you can see goddesses that were terrifying and you can see goddesses that were super beautiful and peaceful you know so that even within yeah. the sri even within the sri vidya tradition which is my tradition it was just already there. It's like, yes, the goddess is horrifying. Yes, she's beautiful. Yes, she, she's young. Yes, she's old. Yes, she's, a, you know, it was all these things. So it was fine. It was just like, all these are facets in this, of this reality. Um, and as soon as you start moving away from that and you start having these kind of artificial dichotomies of like, no, if something looks like Kali, it means it's evil. If something looks like Bhuvaneshwari, it means it's good. That's just ridiculous. And so, I think that having more nuanced views and complex views of theology is very important. Uh, you know, when we talk about esoteric work and when we talk about, I think even within Martinism, there's a much more nuanced view than most people realize on, upon first glance um, of what's happening. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I have I have had some friends who are in the GD and in, and finished Martinism and Masonry and all that who have said they mm-hmm. thought I might not take well to Martinism due to some of the Gnostic worldviews and like maybe the world is evil and still cosmology. But I was I'm not so sure if that's just sort of the antecedent thought that is promoted in the initiations versus sort of the practiced um, ethics within within the within the living martinists today right like often we yeah. in our initiations we have uh uh you know well we have texts in the golden dawn initiations from the bible and the ashmetzareth sure, sure. and the, the, all these yeah. old things just because there's a line from you know uh, from from a certain egyptian worldview or a greek one doesn't mean you're subscribing to it you're 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 exploring it in the context of the initiation and what might be done so i figured it might be something like that rather than like hey if you're going to be a martinist you really should sincerely view the world this way and and that might be a problem for me because it took me a long time to develop my worldview and i'm not really probably going to turn it over lightly to uh, a sing- singular tradition you know no that's very important as you bring up a good point it's like i think we can look at particular uh, theological views and ritual work and theological views in different traditions can often be uh, poetic expressions of reality that functions as instruments to allow us to evolve. And we don't have to be limited by just what we think in that in those particular myths. And so obviously, you know, anyone who would study Hinduism or Tantra understands that the human condition is has a lot of suffering in it right that's the buddhist idea is like what's the first noble truth all life is suffering okay we're starting from that so we no one's no one in any tantric tradition sits around and says no i don't think that when i'm sick it hurts or that when i die i might be scared for a little bit or i am going to die one day and then my body's going to no one denies that those realities but just to think of it as only a prism and as only this worldview, that's very limiting too. So it's, it's, I think it's a little bit of both, um, you know, understanding that. So Martinism is very similar that they might, they might provide a certain myth, certain mythology, a certain Gnostic mythology that allows you to do ritual work, self-transformation, spiritual evolution, um, within a certain particular egregore, but it also functions in a certain way to transform your consciousness, which eventually you rise above those myths. Eventually you see a much larger worldview, uh, which is more about freedom, love, compassion, transformation, which is all alchemy, right? That's what essentially what alchemy ends up becoming as well too. So um, I think that we can use many of these myths, mythology, for example, you know, one of the systems that I've, it is my life that I've, you know, initiated into is Vaishnava tradition within India, which is a, you know, Krishna traditions. And many of, if you saw many traditional Vaishnavas, they're very conservative and they, they have all these rules and they have to only follow a certain way. But that's only one small sect. Other sects are much different. They say, oh yes, those myths can be used, but they don't limit us. They don't limit us on that. So I think that's how we have to view mythology and it can be a tool that helps kind of like situate us in a ritual setting, but then it should transform our consciousness where it expands our worldview and doesn't just limit us. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. The idea of life is pain. You know, I, 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 I didn't really warm to that idea that that Buddhist idea 
until I read actually Scott Peck's Road Less Traveled, and he explained it to me in a way that that made sense to me. You know what I mean? Um, right. Yeah. Like sort of life sucks, but you can choose to focus on the beauty and the love, right? That's an, a human action. He, he exactly. focuses on love. Love is action. I mean, his whole his whole take on everything, it comes from Nicomachean ethics, which is obviously the idea that repeated actions establish good habits and build virtues. And that leads to virtue ethics, which is making a big comeback, has been since I was in grad school 20 years ago. And uh, I honestly think it's something our world could really actually make use of right now is, is the old Greek notion of virtue ethics. And there's a reason it's coming back even in academic study, the idea that if we you know, if we strive, you know, there's something to be said from the we're all sinners and we all need forgiveness point of view. Like, I, oh, I can't stand this crazy purity shit that's going on these days. Like, what the fuck is happening? It's like, honestly, no wonder uh, Christian fundamentalism is like making a huge comeback with this pop culture promotion of perfection and purity, whereby anyone who's ever done anything wrong should not only be canceled, but killed essentially it's very strange and i've talked i've been surreal i've been i've been very vocal about this and even within the occult community where this it's almost this weird this weird return to puritanism puritanism within the occult world which is just mind-boggling to me but puritanism without the forgiveness yeah it's like when i was young (laughs) when i was young and growing up the occult world the occult writers were this wild it was they were naughty it, it, yeah it was like you could do that, that was the whole point of it and so to now to, to, to think people to be you know they have to follow certain rules and they have to follow this world i mean they're, they all end up being secular christians essentially that's kind of what they seem to want um, which is very strange to me um and so i i just don't understand i, I don't understand the world do you understand why it's happening but once again i I sound like a broken record, but that's completely Ahriman. That's com- a completely Ahrimanic infiltration of that, where it just starts most, many of the contemporary occultists, when you really talk to them, they just sound like secular Christians. That's essentially what they are, which is very strange to me, um, because then that's that's not what they're claiming to be. So, uh, no, right? Yeah. Right, it's very odd. The, it's a very odd situation. Yeah. It's, we got, it's a weird mixture of like law of attraction, new thought, and prosperity gospel resuscitating itself through the 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 neo new age the post new ageism of today uh-huh. and the occult revolution to manifest in just um well ideas that i think fundamentally this goes back to something you said on on the we talked about earlier that you mentioned on occult occult of personality which should get a shout out if any of my listeners haven't listened to occult of personality and greg kaminsky's work check him out he had a co-host rudolf berger for a while who now runs the Hermes podcast and I fucking love Rudolf. He's another, he's a Viennese guy and that's the dialect of German I, I learned, right? So I like, you know, I almost made it to visit him when I was in Europe the other year. I was going to go visit Nick Farrell and visit Rudolf on the way. But Rudolf got sick and then Nick was being flaky, flaky so I just said fuck it and stayed in Prague. <laughs> oh, Prague's so, Prague so beautiful. Oh, I was staying in a, in a beautiful mansion uh, with the, the uh, ambassador from uh, Peru, so you know, had servants and all that. It was like, yeah, I'll stay here rather than risk trying to go visit, uh, uh, you know, a couple of people who might not be free. So, <laughs> but Rudolph's great and his Thought Through Me Spod project, prod, podcast is great. So for all you listeners out there who don't know what I'm talking about, go check out 
occult of personality talk check out the authorities podcast they're awesome yay and but what the point you were saying was that this idea of lack of understanding of basic philosophy and theology i mean that's one thing that shocked me when i went into seminary and grad school and was like okay because i had been running a golden dawn temple for a few years um after training up through it and i was like we were dealing with all these problems that we had no answers for order wide across the entire order and the thousand plus person membership internationally we were coming up across all these problems and i had to deal with them as a local temple chief here in vancouver and i didn't know how and then all of a sudden i was in doing grad school and i'm like holy shit they have dealt with literally every single one of these problems we're facing you know not 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 in a little less magical way but but they and they have they've had solutions they've been working on for centuries if not millennia right and i was like started taking just even class handouts and different things i learned in class taking them back to the other adept at, at the temple and showing them to him and, and and then basically spending hours regurgitating everything i learned in class he would just be clapping and laughing he's like dude this would solve literally every problem we just had on the inner order chat tonight i'm like i know and it's but it's like they're closed yeah, to the information they were closed yeah, to off to the information yeah. they didn't want to hear it it's like look these churches for all the for all the shit talk you can throw at churches which is fair it's fair sure um, sure sure, they, sure. They're, they're still trying to serve their people there are major organizations and putting a ton of money and a ton of their people involved have really excellent educations advanced degrees these are highly professional people i mean the it's the church professor it's the professors of theology and ethics and stuff that sit on uh uh hospital board ethics councils and run yes. them like this is yes. this stuff affects everyone's lives a lot of the major people who run cities show up are there in the in the congregation i when i was preaching every sunday at an anglican church during my training episcopal church for you yanks um uh i was getting to speak to us often notable people once i got to preach and i was surprised to see desmond tutu in the audience i was like oh shit i better say something fucking smart what do I right, do? Right. You know, so you and and you know, I ended up giving a sermon against golf courses and how they're destroying the First Nation land, taking it from the First Nations, not giving them any money, and then just giving it to the wealthiest white people in the local community to enjoy for golf, and that it's basically like shitting on on not only a people but on Mother Nature at the same time, and and people, it was very well received. This was like two thousand and this was February two thousand three. Um, and uh you never forget a good sermon you deliver brother never and that's a great opportunity to to change even the political or light the social environment of the world you live in through these churches um and that's why i think they're not they haven't had their day right they're not going anywhere and so we should at least learn learn the benefits of their failures like if we're not learning those things then we're we're just gonna reinvent the wheel or try 100 percent, i agree and that, you know i when, when it often you know when people critique uh, religious organizations it, it's coming from a place where they don't have to run an organization so i would love to see some of these people who try to run their own organizations and the reality of what that means and and spiritual movements are completely connected with social environments they're completely connected with that and so um, like you said, we have to look at these organizations. Sure, we can see there's problems, but we also can learn from it. We can grow from it, and we can we and we can also see sometimes they do okay work. 
Um, it's you know, so I think that's that what you say is very important. It's a it's a very interesting thing to 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 see that. I totally agree. Awesome. Well, that's why I do this podcast to force people to agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just being silly. It's a it's a fun podcast. Okay, but as a serious magical, with all the experience you have, and I assume you've trained students as well in magic, not just in martial arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What occasionally, do you think, occasionally? What do you think is what do you think happens? Well, this is just a take this holistically. What do you think goes on when you deal with students who um, have problems break down throughout the work and sort of uh, fall into those dark cycles, whether it's uh, through demonic intelligences or obsession with problems or just burnout while trying to seek what Rudolf Steiner would probably call the solar initiation, which is something I believe everyone can and should have if they pursue, pardon me, the Western mystery tradition or any mystery tradition. There's, there's right. this, uh, why does everyone want to be an adept? It's because they want, they want this experience. They want to feel like there's a voice up there that they can connect with that can guide them better through life than without it. And so it's, I think, one quite damaging that we, we, we treat these things in such an elitist way as we do these days. Um, sure. I don't know why we do that, but, but there's a more, more tangible problem, not the problem of people treating these grades or accomplishments or levels of enlightenment as, as elitist. That's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is people who fail to even get to that place that those of us know they can get to because we got there how do because my question is always how can we better serve people to get where we got to not that that means it's all that great a place but at least it's the least we can do right the least i can do is help people experience yes. the best things i've experienced the, yeah. at, at the very least and that is still a hard thing to do to guide people to have the best kinds of experiences that I myself got to have and that have fueled me and saved my life many times since, since having them. I, I totally agree. I mean, that's why I often say to people or I often finish messages on social media or things I'll say, invest in your health and then help as many people and animals as you can. And that's essentially why we're here as human beings with our karmic experience and our corporeal incarnation is on this dimension that we are going to be interacting with people. We, and then hopefully we can, whether we're a spiritual practitioner, whether we're a plumber, an acupuncturist, an herbalist, a Kung Fu teacher, um, that we're trying to help other people become a better person in whatever path they're doing. And when we talk about spiritual things, you bring up really important points. So I often ask people, you know, what are their goals for their spiritual path? Like, what are they trying to achieve? And then they need to know that, they need to understand that. Um, and then I often try to tell them that, you know, any kind of spiritual attainment is not going to give them a get out of jail free card of being a human, that they're still going to have the human experience, they're still going to have human emotions, human successes and human failures. And that our spiritual perception should also be a part of that, but it's not just going to make life perfect. It's much like, you know, you see people like look to meditation to something to make them happy right we've seen that in the past couple of years about the past four or five years there's been that big movement like oh now maybe meditation might be dangerous you know because 
Well, meditation was never supposed to make anybody happy. Meditation was not something to, <laughs> as an antidepressant ever in yoga. It was just a technique to decondition the mind. And so that oftentimes you would encounter all your darkness and demons during meditation. That was the actual point. That's the whole point. During, <laughs> that's the whole point. But then the Western, you know, new age and the things are always like, oh, no, it's just going to create your own reality. You're just going to be happy. And so we can not find all that interesting with that. So I'll often just ask people, you know, what are your goals? What do you want to do? What do you feel called to do? And then in the same sense, you know, remember that this is not going to make your life perfect, but it should give you a perspective which helps you appreciate the, the, the basically to appreciate how life just is so quick and life is, it goes by so fast and it's so precious. So fast. And it take, so fast. So fast. Yeah. So like, fast. And so that's what I often try to remind people. It's like, don't waste a moment. You know, it's very like I wrote in tantric physics that, you know, it's the, it's very rare to have a human body. It's even more rare to find a teacher. And then it's even more rare to have a desire to want to grow. So if you have those three things, if you have a human body, you want to grow and you've met a teacher, you've won the jackpot. And at that point, you should take, you should do everything you can to learn and grow and everything else is just icing on the cake. And so then, then in the meantime, while we're doing that, we should try to help. That's what I say. We help as many people and help as many animals as you can. I'm a very passionate animal rights activist. And so that's my thing. But other people might be help something else. So that's just it. But I often, basically, before anyone goes into any spiritual path or if they come to me for advice, I always just say, what are your goals? What do you want? What do you want to achieve? And, and, and that hopefully they're not trying to seek an escapism or power in a spiritual realm that they don't have in the, in the, in the mundane realm, you know, things like that. Uh, I ask very practical questions. And then, and then if they're, you know, called to a certain tradition, that's very important as opposed to forcing themselves into a certain tradition. And now a word from our sponsors. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Um, and everyone kind of has their own reasons for doing that. But that's typically what I try to encourage people to do is just to like know, know why you're doing it. Why do you want to do it? Much like I would tell people, honestly, if they said, I'm thinking about going into this path of study here, I want to get a, I want to get a degree in this. I want to get a degree in that. I, I, would, I would tell them, you know, why do you want to do that? What's the point of doing that? you know do you think that's you know do you do you love that do you want to do that all those kind of basic questions i ask the same thing if someone comes you know with spiritual questions as well mm.
Yeah, no, I, I, it's it's interesting that you said that if you uh, you said if you found a teacher and and your if you have your health, is that the other one? Yeah, if you have a human body yeah. and it's healthy, and then if you have a desire to grow, and then and you meet a teacher, those three things are like the three jewels. Because many people have a human body, but they don't care about growing. They don't. It doesn't matter. And other people might have a human body, and that's and okay, care, right? And, yeah, and yeah, that's fine. That's their karma. That's their path. And then just let that's that's no big deal. But it, and some people have a human body. They want to grow, and they don't have a teacher. And that's that's also unfortunate karma too. But now, of course, we live in a world which is just it's just ridiculous. The the, the amount of material we have in our hands. I mean, I was I, I had a moment today. I was making some notes for a. a a study group that I that I teach on uh, Nakamati, and I was making some notes. Oh wow! And I and I just really? laughed. I just laughed because I pulled out my old textbooks from college, and it brought me back to the basement of LSU, Louisiana State University, looking at the Gospel of Thomas on microfiche because there was no books. And I was yeah. just, I remember thinking, I remember thinking, oh my God, this is just so powerful. You know, it's, of course it transformed my life and changed my life. I was like, this is so amazing. This is so beautiful. And now you can get the gospel of Thomas like at Barnes and Noble. Or you <laughs> yeah. can get, it's, it's at every used bookstore. It's in the, you know, waiting room. At, it's just like everything is everywhere now. The access to information is just nuts. So part of me, when I hear people say, like, I can't find a teacher, part of me is just like, come on, you know, it's like when someone it's like when you recommend something to someone and they're like, can uh, you, and you name it? And they're like, can you give me the link? It's like, you really don't know how to write those Ser words no. in Google. No, it's, it's, that is mind boggling That's, to hear that one. It's, yeah. It happens all the time. And I, to this day, I, 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 I just like short circuit when, I, when yeah, people no. ask me that. No. no offense to my, my fans and friends on Instagram who no, have asked no, me that. No, I'm, just, absolutely. I'm just saying no, like totally. some of the, the, it's like, guys, come on. So it's like, yeah, but with spiritual teachers, like there's so much material out there. Like I only recently in the last uh, couple of years discovered David Heimsmith and I'm, and my, my, oh, my right, react, right, right. my reaction to that has been like, you know, when Stephen Skinner says magic and spirituality have nothing really to do with each other and it's a mistake to think they do. And he's like, magic's a technology, go study it, go, go learn it to use it. And then if you want spirituality, he's like, go do yoga or something. Well, uh -huh. there is something to what he's saying. I do get where he's coming from when he says that. Um, it doesn't address the fact that initiatory schools are basically designed to be fusions of mysticism and magic it, it does sort of right, right. almost ignore that reality like that actually exists it's like you know that exists right and that it works for some people okay anyway yeah. but, but the, his point yeah. is still sound his point is sound the the technological aspect of magic is distinct from spirituality and one and it does not necessitate it like the idea that you have to have gone through a this or that ceremony and be this or that kind of adept to do this or that ritual or get a clear transmission from the spirit world that's actually not being just uh, filtered uh you know that's being not just uh reflecting your own scattered ego and thoughts is is right, a little right. is a little insulting to uh the dignity of the human soul which i consider to be um all souls to be equal let's say right um yeah, and that yeah, yeah. and it yeah, does sure. and it's like so like you don't 
it's like uh, the idea that that you know uh someone as an adept in one of these magical orders versus uh someone who's just learned grimoire magic can't get as clear communication because they haven't gone through the inner alchemy is a little bit insulting to the idea of the dignity of the human soul and it's and right it's right natural you know divine glory but when i discovered heimsmith i was like kabbalah is definitely a system of spirituality and it right. definitely doesn't need to be inter integrated into any system, sort of magical system whatsoever and when I looked at his 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 expression of of the Hayun school of Kabbalah, I was like, "Oh, this is a spirituality I can get into, and it doesn't right. actually, and it will inform my magical thinking, I'm sure, as it has actually, as I've been slowly working through the 32 keys with with the kind of uh, slow. Uh, I take I like to do things. I take things. I like to. I, my work ethos has always been in line with Saint Francis. Good work goes slowly. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've always That's taken my smart. time on yeah. the most important things. You know, he has that song sung by Donovan in the movie Brother Sun, Sister Moon. Good work goes slow. I always loved yeah. that. I always thought it made perfect sense as a kid. And I took that ethos with me into my life. And it served me well for the most important things that I did. Um, it's a very you know. it's a very important concept in Kung Fu. You know, we, we oh, have yeah? that idea. That hey, you, that's you interesting. Know, because uh yeah because kung fu kung fu is one of the few martial arts that, that values like slow speed along with like tai chi and bujinkan right they they yeah, train so, very slowly yeah and it was just the amount of time that it will take there's like this journey is going to take a long time and uh just and that's the reality of it and you you know by doing that you will have something that you will cherish forever because it's priceless because you've earned it not because of something that you get very quick and you want something very fast and um so that's that's the problem with the the flip side of what i was saying yes we do have access to all this information but now people just want things instantly they don't understand that the ease of access doesn't mean depth of learning you know it's, that's it's the one of the like, hardest things to communicate yeah it's like people who own a book like that's fine i'm glad you own this book but have you read it and have you can it can you discuss it with me like there's a lot of people who collect books but they haven't really read them and so yeah. it's just, that's that's the thing so it's it's we but i do think overall we you know we have so much access to materials now that you can really educate yourself and then when you do meet people you can ask extremely educated questions and then then you can accelerate your learning you know the more you know by the time you do meet your teacher or your mentor or a good friend who might know more than you, then you're, you're going to have all these great questions to ask them, which will speed up your growth as opposed to just waiting around for something to happen. So I think um, that's kind of ties back into what we started our conversation with. I think that, you know, education is so important. It's not the only answer, but it's very important. Yeah. yeah. Nobody thinks that education is important unless until they're going to the doctor, right? <laughs> everybody everybody says things like oh everyone's equal and it doesn't matter what you do and that's all a metaphor but when they when they go to their vet or they go to their doctor they're like this person better be the fucking best person in the world right now so you know and that's kind of what they want because it's a very serious situation they want that person to be to help them and so we can apply that concept into everything else that we do in life um that we should try hard and try our best and then and then you know to learn and to grow and to 
learn something in depth because that's why we're, it's a very rare chance to be a human. So we're here and now we're living in the Kali Yuga where we have access to all this material. It's just wild that, that we wouldn't take advantage of that and, and really dive into it. Well, it, it does create the, I mean, like, yeah, as much as it's wonderful to have access to all this stuff, uh, you see people struggling with the surplus of information. They don't know. Right, without a doubt. It's, yeah, yes. it's who, you know, and that's where, uh, that's where I'm trying to do my little part as a spiritual director and help people learn. I did this with Christians when I worked for the church and it's like, they're like, you know, they, they hit roadblocks on their spirituality and they're like, it's like, well, you know, what are you until you find out what their, what their life is like. Usually these are probably, these are pretty mundane parishioners we're talking about. Right. But there's always, there's usually a saint out there or a a prayer book out there or a a new practice of prayer, like Teze or centering prayer that I can direct people to that they'll be like, it's just all it sometimes takes is like one more granule to tip the scale. And all of a sudden they're into a whole new realm of, of exploration and that in, inflames them with prayer. Well, that's, yeah. you know, you play, that's a very important role you play. It's, it's much like uh, the health coach in the medical field. It's like, there has to be someone just to give them a little bit of guidance and be, to be a filter and to help them figure out what they want. And that can be so massive. It doesn't have to be something so huge all the time, but it can just be a nuanced recommendation or a, or a pointer somewhere. That, and that's why we always have to be listening. You know, I always tell people they have to cultivate their listening skills as a spiritual practitioner, as a human too. But obviously as a spiritual practitioner, we always want to be able to listen to messages that come um, because there are so many people can offer so much great advice if we can listen to them. And then if we follow that advice, um, so that's wonderful that you're doing that. That's, yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a hugely important thing for people to be able to have someone they can go to to ask for advice like that. Well, I'm doing it for occultists now. So I figured that it was a, a better use of my time than working with uh, sort of uh, Christians who were only dipping their toes in the water to work with yeah. occultists who don't actually have many educated spiritual directors who got their yeah. master's in divinity actually with some training to really uh, you know know what they're doing rather than just you know, quote unquote, draw cards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's very important. Yeah, and that's that, that that's kind of the idea. That's, you know, the whole first part of tantric physics is my volume one is all a discussion of the importance of the teacher, the environment that it creates and why you need that to guide you. And regardless of any system you have, doesn't matter whether it's Eastern or Western, whatever, having somebody there that you can go to with questions is so crucial. I mean, in my academic life, uh, the most powerful moments I had were discussions in the office of my professors, not in the classroom. Oh yeah, it yeah, was never asked, in the yeah. <laughs> once, it was never in the I, classroom. Once I asked my uh, my master's supervisor, who's an ethics ethicist, I said to him once, "You're going to like this," because he was also a Lutheran pastor. Nice. Um, I said maybe Presbyterian, but I mean they're pretty similar. Um, there, you know. <laughs> um, I said to him, I said, I said, I said, okay. I said it is towards the end of my thesis. I was like, so what really is the difference between philosophy and theology? And he he like looked down and then he looked up and smiled and he's like, honestly, theology is just a bit more optimistic. Right. <laughs> he's right. like, I'm like, I'm like, I was right. There's no difference. He's like, no, there's no difference. And it's like, they, and you don't read, they should tell you this first year of undergrad motherfuckers. Like they fucking should tell you this shit. They don't tell 
there's, I think our education system is padded to the point of, of insanity in the undergrad system, honestly. I, I think they should get rid of undergrads altogether, have like a preliminary year, and then you just go do master's degrees, as many as you yeah, want, whatever subjects you want. It's very unfortunate. Because, yeah. because the, base, the most amazing things about uh, academic education is how they teach you to think, but they usually don't do that till grad school. It's almost like they're trying yeah. to keep that to themselves. Like, it's like, what are you doing? The most important no, thing you could do here is teach people how to use their brains, but you're not doing it until they pay you a hundred grand for a four-year degree first. Yeah, no, it's true. But I mean, that's all of my graduate studies and all of my advanced, you know, discussions with professors that always, it was always on a one-to-one or, or, or small groups. And none of that happened in the classroom thing. The classroom was just like a, kind of a game you played to get there. Um, same, th- same thing with my studies in martial arts. All, hmm. of my big mo- all, all of my big moments never came in a group class. It was always with private lessons, one-to-one, and that finally something was a breakthrough. Or, um, so I think that's the, the nature of the beast, but I, I do agree with you. It needs to be discussed more um, as an issue you know, within academia, because we're, because we, I can't say that just because someone goes to college means they're going to be smart. We know that's not going on anymore. Yeah. You know, sadly. It, um, it probably never was. Right. It's probably more, it was probably more an indicator of like smart people would go to college. Um, exactly. But then, then once college became mandatory for pretty much every job, you, everyone had to go to college, including people who had no interest in becoming smart. And if you have no interest in becoming smart, you won't. No, no, you won't. That's very true. It doesn't you matter have how to, many books you read, you'll just, yeah, or the testing or anything. Yeah. To, to transform the natural rhythms of intellectual thought means you have to sort of destroy the base operating structure that develops growing up as a kid. You do have to dismantle it, it seems, and break it apart and then put it back together again to, to actually have a change in how you think. Um, right. but, but if everyone's required to go get these degrees, like an undergrad, then they just want the job that comes at the end of the tunnel yeah, and they're not going to, they're not going to let their brains be deconstructed. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. Do you, would you say the, you know, the tantric physics, uh, I almost said in Nokian, you can tell what I study, uh, <laughs> <laughs> tantric physics, is it a good book for then for teachers and students to help teachers be better teachers? Yeah. I mean, that's something that I, I wanted tantric physics to be something that anyone could still read and get something from, even if they weren't Hindu as well. And, yeah. uh, Greg, we, we talked about that in the recent, you know, cult of personality interview. I'm, I was happy to see that Greg picked that up too. He's like, regardless even if you weren't following this path, that you're going to be able to get something from this to apply to your own. That was the idea too. Um, because the teacher and the student is one facet of a large, you know, world and within that, you know, other magical things can happen. Um, and so I think, yeah, that would be something which anyone could pull from and it, whether they were a Martinist could read tantric physics and get something from it, or a Thelemite could read tantric physics and bring something to it. Um, and or a Hindu obviously could read tantric physics and they might feel a deeper connection to it, but it does have something there for everyone. That's something that's very important to me to do that because I never want my writing to be something which is so ridiculous sectarian that it that it limits it. I want I want it to be something which expands people's consciousness, expands their mind, not limit it. 
Um, and but that's fine. I have respect for people if they're writing from a strictly certain sectarian viewpoint. That's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not something that I have any particular interest in doing. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, what you said about how ch- uh, in on those other podcasts about how change occurs at an individual level and and, and yes. not really at a social macro level. Right. Yeah. yeah, that is very important for us to think about that concept that that change is going to come through totally each person in their own way. Um, and that's something that people really seem to have a lot of trouble with thinking about today. Um, we can't yeah. force massive societal change. It just does not happen that way. Um, never has and never will. Um Despite how many of, mandates you put on people. Right, right. It just doesn't happen that way. I mean, we've seen that with health. I mean, how many mandates can you put to make people healthy? How much has that helped? People, we have more obesity ever in the history of the world, and the studies and the statistics show it's only going to get worse. Yet we have more warning signs on every food, and we have all the documentaries out about how bad it is, but no one it doesn't matter. People are not changing their diets, not getting healthier. It does not matter. So that's all a personal thing. It doesn't matter what information you give someone. If they don't want to change, they're not going to change. And health is the biggest, health is the best example of that. You know, it's just like, and when we look at the data for obesity in in America, and if we look at the data for obesity in the world, it's completely frightening. And, and if the people don't care, they're like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much you've told them it's dangerous. It doesn't matter how much you've told them this is this. It doesn't matter. You know? Yeah, you, you guys got a real uh, <laughs> crazy crisis with that in the States. Um, I mean, I'm pretty, I think I'm, I'm pretty much the fattest person in Vancouver. Um, I'm overweight, right? So, and, and I really stand out here. Everyone's so healthy. Um, you know, but then in the States, I always, I always joked when I was younger, I always loved going to LA because I felt so thin there. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, that's 100 a, pounds overweight weight yeah, like I mean, that's, super it, it thin in big, la yeah it's a big problem um with uh, everywhere but particularly um long-term health it's it, it, it's a very troubling issue so yeah well if yeah. we don't change we, ourselves we, then nature will change yeah. it for us yeah i mean we can't mandate health like you can't force people to change. It just won't happen. You could tell them that it just that's that's what, kind of what we're talking about. We're, we're trying to search for examples to talk about that. That's kind of what we're saying. So yeah, personal tra- personal transformation is the most important thing in all of our lives and, and helping people facilitate their own personal transformation and supporting people in their personal transformation, aiding them like you do, being a guide. That's very, very important. And that's what it, it's, it's all spiritual paths you know, really boil down to that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very interested in the recent shift in thinking that seems to start be starting, but I don't know if it's going to be, I mean, I'm sure the corporations will spin it in the wrong way, but there seems to be a shift in thinking uh, from people, uh, uh, people are unhealthy because they're fat to people are fat because they're unhealthy. And I think that latter framework is a much more accurate one. Sure, some yeah. people just yeah. just some people just eat shit all day, and that's that's right. all. And they eat right. too much. Right, right, right. For sure, for sure. But a lot of people, like, so I, 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 I didn't. I had undiagnosed celiac disease till I was thirty-one, 
Uh, and and okay. my whole life, it's like all people told me was like, you're lazy, stupid and fat like that. Even my, my dad would tell me that, you know, as, as things would get worse, my health declined. And, you know, then I found out what was wrong with me, switched my diet and lost almost like two, 300 pounds in a year. Yeah. yeah right. And massive. I was like, oh, oh, so there was actually something wrong with me, just like I was sure there was it, I. I knew it didn't, it wasn't normal to eat a meal and then be in pain for four hours my whole life. Right. But yet right. every time I tried to bring it up with people, they're just like, stop being such a pussy. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, it's much more complex. That was the eighties. <laughs> yeah, totally. Stop being such so, a pussy. Yeah, no, it's true. So we have to look at overall the whole big picture with behavioral change, diet, lifestyle, all of those psychology, of, like how much of health. how much are people mentally fucked up because of the way we've structured our reality and oh, they don't know how to deal with that other than to eat another burger. Like I I get that mentality for sure and I really would like to see some sort of shifts. Like I would go to great extremes to be a part of causing any sort of shifts in understanding because now when i look at someone who weighs like 500 pounds i have a very different mental reaction to what i used to have growing up as a kid in the 80s 90s based on what my dad and parents or adults would tell me those people's problems was you know oh they're right. just lazy they don't take blah 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 now i look at someone like that and i'm like this is someone who's not had probably doesn't have anyone listening to what's going on with them. Right. No, like zero attention has been paid to this person's holistic health and yeah. they don't know what to do about it. And speaking as a occasional fat person, I, I fluctuate radically between like 150 pounds and 300 pounds. Don't, don't ask. <laughs> That's the celiac. <laughs> it's the celiac game for me. It's the way my body type, as my mom would say, I'm a kapha pitta. Um, cause I was oh, raised, right, Ayur- right. I was raised Ayurvedic, man. I was, I right, was in right. shock. I was in shock when I found out Christians existed and that you know, health was <laughs> that there's like, you know, drugs and all of this stuff. No, we were like, you know, just meditate and you'll be fine. Um, right, and right. I, I was shocked to find out that. So like now, yeah, it's the, 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 the fact that there's just this huge psychological moment that our bodies react differently to the same diets. One body will react one way, one body will react another way. Like we're starting to have these dialogues and I'm really optimistic about that. It's really great to know that there's um, like super fit martial artists out there like you and Paul Rana who also have, you know, doctorates in, 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 in health and like tra- tra- traditional Chinese medicine is amazing. My uh, old Irish teacher, uh, when I was in grad school, he was a rambunctious gay kid doing his uh, doctor in Chinese medicine. And he was oh, in wonderful. New York now. He taught me Irish Gaelic and uh, also would uh, get me, he introduced me to marijuana at age 24. First time I experienced marijuana. And we'd watch Dawson's Creek and he would stick needles all over my body. And it was nice. fabulous. And I learned so much about my health because, you know, he would make me the most fucking weird concoctions to drink whenever I mentioned anything. Or if I had a sore throat, he'd like, oh, yeah, have a stir fry or eat some peanuts. And it worked. Right. Amazing. Amazing. No, that's wonderful you had that experience. The whole idea that you pay your doctor when you're well, but not when you're sick. I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's what I always tell people. It's like, please invest in your health please invest in your health. It's so important. Um, it's, it's something that we're going to, you know, if we have to live at our karma 
on this earth and we're going to live it in a human body, the healthier we are, the easier we can function and complete our karma. That's the whole point of it. And that's essentially what Ayurveda is. Ayurveda is a system of medicine that allows you to have the longest, healthiest life so that you can embody your karma and live your dharma in the best possible yeah. way. And that's ideal. That's what we typically want. Um, so we need to help people and encourage them to be healthy, to see them as unique individuals with unique situations, listen to them. The majority of my time in a medical, my medical practice is just listening. Yeah. It's just, it's just listening to people because they're not, they're not listened to. And so what, you know, that's what, you know, my favorite, one of my biggest inspirations was the American physician, William Osler. And he used to always say, listen to your patient. They're telling you their diagnosis, you know? And he was saying, you know, he was like, seriously, they're telling you what's wrong. Listen to them. But, you know, that's the most important thing. So uh, that's kind of why I always emphasize like spiritual listening, regular listening, the art of listening. I mention this a lot because it's so important because in my opinion, no one's listening to each other anymore. They're just screaming at each other. They're just arguing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and well, and then there's even greater systemic problems. For example, in Canada here, we, for those of the listeners who get mad when I rag on the Canadian medical system, we do have a great medical system. If you break your arm or get cancer or whatever, you'll never pay a penny. However, right, we right. also have a medical system where, I have yet to find a doctor who looks, who would, uh, I, I, I was in the hospital once and, a, and I told the surgeon what was going on and he looked me in the eyes and he said, celiac disease does not exist. Oh. So if you have a country that refuses to acknowledge certain diseases because it would be too expensive to treat them, given our socialized healthcare, you're super fucked. I hear that a lot. You know, I don't. Obviously, that's not something in America that, that we have, but I hear yeah, that no. constantly. I hear that in America, constantly. In I hear America, that constantly at least you can always find a doctor to treat you if you have the money. If you're like, I think this is what's wrong with me. Maybe I have celiac disease. Will you treat me? They're like, yes, for a price. It's like, great. Yes, all of, all of my <laughs> friends from Europe. No, that's very interesting to hear that because all of my friends from Europe say that. What you just said. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it's good. It's good because of this. However... I, I can't get this or I can't get that. It's, it's very, it's very interesting. It, this There's is, only one place the, in the world you can get treated properly for celiac disease. And that's the Spruce center in New York. Spruce. See, the this, old shows you, for, right? this shows you this. It's just so complex. The, the whole, what we're how do you take about. care like, of yourself? Imagine you're not me. Who's highly capable as a human being. Imagine you're some other 500 pound dude. Who's depressed, abused as a kid, doesn't know what to do goes to the hospital he has celiac disease they won't test him for it because they don't want to pay for it and they also don't accept the testings that's accepted in other countries anyway they just tell him that he's fat and needs to uh, take care of himself better he's like what how come it feels like there's glass in my stomach after i eat and then i can't shit for four days they're like well maybe you should eat better and exercise more what right. the fuck the person's body can't digest dairy, gluten, all of these things shouldn't have seeds, all of this stuff. And they aren't even willing to tell them. So yeah, it's, we're in a very precarious situation for, for our physical health these days. Like we are, we live in systems that are designed to make us less healthy. Um, right. Especially if you have these certain situations. And I, I was a, I was a less than compassionate kid, shall we say at times growing up, but having 
being blessed by these illnesses in later and discovering them in later life, my compassion and empathy has has just gone gotten to a level that I'm actually glad you know i'm glad that i yes. learned compassion and empathy for all these things that i just you know just had no sense of until it yeah. the, you know fuck you know what i'm saying yeah. uh, no it's, it's an intense subject That's, it's an intense subject no, i get emotional no it's a very intense subject and um you know just the, within the past five minutes you know we've shown how complex this whole thing is it's there's not just one easy answer and it shows, uh, you know, how we, we've thought these things, but I think you bring up the most important thing is that any kind of medical system has to be founded, grounded, and rooted in compassion. And, and if it's rooted in compassion, then there's something we'll work out, we'll figure it out, as opposed to rooted in purely profit and purely this or purely that. So that's one of the most important things, even through studying medicine, is it should make someone become more compassionate and i used to always say you know anyone who studied the human body and didn't think that there was a quote an intelligent design in the universe i, I thought something was wrong with them you know there, there, there's no way when you when you study you study the human body and just the, the magical processes the human body does every moment that we exist in it's just mind-blowing and so just to, to think, oh, that's just random. That's just pure luck. It's just my, it's just laughable to me. But it also shows us that each person's suffering is very important and very unique. And we have to, we should listen to that and help them. And that's kind of why we're here to help each other as we're all each on our own journey. Um, and that's the best we can do. And that's probably a good place to end for that, that comment right there, that idea right there. Yeah. Yeah. My mom yeah, always said there was. I, I, I appreciate hearing your stories. It's very, very interesting. Well, you know, I, 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 it's obviously a rare treat to talk with a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine who also has these similar backgrounds in Hinduism and, uh, right, and right. Uh, hermeticism. That's a uh, you're you're an even rarer specimen than I realized before we uh, uh, started talking. So it's a it's a treat. Thank you for yeah sharing so much time with me today. Oh, it's my honor. Absolutely, this stuff. my honor. Yeah. Well, so. I mean, we'll we'll definitely have to do a, a round two once I've read one of your books, and and uh, I really do look forward to that. Uh, obviously, things have been hard since COVID, and the cult books are are fabulously priced today. I mean, I'm very glad that such high quality books are put out now for occultists, and that that means that occultists are actually getting paid a couple bucks for their writings. Um, and it's encouraging them to write better and do better work and all of that. I think that's just a excellent, wonderful thing. Um, well, you know. I, I think, I think, no, I think you're right, but that's also one of the reasons why I'm really, um, very happy that all my, that my books are in paperback as well. You can get, uh, entering the desert and cult and cult of Gagatha for very inexpensive paperbacks and, uh, tantric physics, you know, in a year from now, we'll be out in paperback as well. And yes. so then it's, it's very important for my material to be accessible to everyone. And although yes. I love, love, love beautiful hardback books, um, to me, my favorite are still paperbacks because they can go, anyone can have it. It can go all over. Um, and that's what it should be. You know, every, any, everyone should be able to pay 20 bucks and get a book if they want it. Um, I think that's very important. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. But it's, uh, it's, uh, so yeah, the, so, so for those, the, there's a beautiful copy of your tantric physics still available in hardcover from Anathema and, and, uh, and the others are uh, soft cover, 
which and uh, anathema and anathema publishing does just beautiful paperbacks they're just gorgeous are they okay cool That's yes good. they're Cause, beautiful cause they paperbacks. are they're still a quite a bit more in canada like it's it's 50 bucks to get your paperback in canada um but that's, that's because part, part part of that is because uh they're gouging us right now with our currency exchange so even though oh, like our, even though our, okay. so yeah this is a, this is a thing across the board right now that that everyone's doing including amazon of course so like even though our our dollars are only worth like very are very close to the same value a 20 dollar book in the in amazon us is 50 in canada and oh. it's like what the fuck yeah they're like it's like our money's not worth that much less than yours you're just doing this because we're canadians and you can get away with it and that's exactly what's going on i'm so sorry um, that. it's yeah. rough too because a lot of us are still a lot of you know the minimum wage is still like nine bucks here so it's uh for the average person that's really rough yeah yeah totally totally well the, yeah. yeah the paperbacks typically run about 25 dollars of american dollars and um my soundtrack physics is there's still a cup some copies left of the standard the deluxe is sold out um, yeah there's a bunch but, uh, of books i'm waiting to buy what till i'm back in the states next just because of like some places are like 30 dollars shipping from the u.s like yeah maybe, oh, but yeah, okay. yeah oh yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah totally yeah it's it's, it's it, yeah it's like so a 20 dollar book plus 33 shipping Oh, that's painful to hear. I'm so sorry. It, it's it's not fun, uh, but you know whatever. We 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 live in Canada. We deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> take, take Blame with Canada. It. Take off, eh? Hey, fucking hoser. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man. Yeah. Oh, well, thank I, you, I can't thank wait you. to meet you, man. It'll be fun yeah, to visit so Austin. Yeah. Well, I hope you can come down soon to Austin, and I, I'm honored that we had this time to really kind of relax and have a conversation it's wonderful so i really oh, it was, appreciate it brother it was a it was a delight and i mean it, it might not be soon that i'm in austin I, i'm gonna stay in here as long as my family's here um my, my, sure. my mother my mother's health is holding up but once uh once she uh does return to the summer land i will uh make i will definitely visit austin as it's as i've been saying i would since 97 to my friends there so and actually three of my uh students like a third of my students are basically all in in texas which is hilarious you know like i i because i teach online right uh every yeah, sunday yeah. i do a class and like three of the students are in canada and three are in texas <laughs> and the others are spread about but it's like that's an odd thing that's just an odd statistical thing to have happen but i don't mind it us maybe something's going on in texas something's going on in texas <laughs> so that's the problem you guys are like you know doing i don't know you're the bastion of occultists or free thinkers or i don't know so it's, <laughs> it's definitely not what i'm hearing from the news about you know texas. no absolutely that's a good point yeah. Actually, according to the, the news exact, you're all uh you know it is the exact opposite of what you hear on the news 100 i will say that for sure yeah but yeah as a canadian i know not to take the news too seriously given you know like freaking the news is always like ed educations and free in canada and everyone in canada is like then why am i in so much debt from education <laughs> Oh, like right. it's it's yeah, yeah man like we, yeah like uh fortunately we can go bankrupt on our student loans here after seven years of being out of school that's what we can do that's the difference and you should have that too like you get a degree and you don't have the money and after seven years you still can't afford to make a single payment you should be able to go bankrupt on it because oh, what good is that degree right yeah yeah it, that reminds me of the uh scene from one of my favorite tv shows er when the young nurse the young medical student asked george clooney 
how long did it take you to pay off your medical loan? And he goes, are you joking? I'll never pay this off. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's like, it doesn't happen. You just keep paying. <laughs> you know, so like that's my life story too. But we do yeah. that. I, I do that out of my true desire to help as many people as I can with their health. That's to me the most fundamental reason why I have this human incarnation is just to help people with their health. Everything else is just a fun game with the goddess that she allows me to live out and have fun with. So that is a gorgeous note to end on thank you so amen. much for your time amen thank you brother dear god that right. was a yeah and what a beautiful sentiment eh? just uh yeah all right folks go find his uh his books on anathema publishing and your what's your blog site you can look at if they want to they can go to of course anathemapublishing.com and they'll have links to my blog they can also go to my website which is ayurvedaaustin.com and that'll have links to two of my blogs and everything else. And you'll help people discover if they're kapha, pitta, or something in between. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. My mom always said there was one of those body types that actually does really well if they start their day with a piece of chocolate cake. There you go. Yeah. I don't know if that's true. Some some body well, types the most... are meant to have coffee. Some should have sugar in the morning. Different different things. It was it was an interesting thing to hear growing up, though I never really understood it. That's very, that's, uh, that's very true. We should all love what we eat. That's the most important thing. All right, brother. Um, thanks for being on Magic Without Fears. It's my honor. Thank you so much. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk